Hello. Welcome to Miley's. Second episode-ish. Second episode, part one. It's complicated. Of Smiley's After Hours. Um, this episode is chiefly tackling Danaspola's episode-ish with uh, Lord Vathor Sander. <clears throat> now, because this is a very big sort of episode, last chapter in Danaspola, thematic explorations of Forge of Darkness, I am only going to be tackling a specific theme from this. I will be returning to this particular chapter later. Um, and more specifically, I will not be able to cover this in just vague terms from later books. So this, the new spoiler scope for this will have to be less than vague terms uh, for Fall of Light. Other than that, the same spoiler scope applies pretty much, like from last week, which was. Um, the Book of the Fallen, Karganos, and that's pretty much it. And whatever ancient Greek tragedy I managed to spring up, which in this case will probably just be Antigone and probably Deepest Rex. So, without any further ado, let's get into it. Um, to start, we're actually going to backtrack a bit, or perhaps more accurately, we're going to move forward a bit, and we're going to ask a rather simple question. Who is Kadaspala? How is he in any way qualified to talk about all this stuff? Well, it's not that same question of me because it's not a question I would like to answer right now. But so, who is Kadaspala, and why does Kadaspala work as a tragic hero? Um, Kadaspala is a noble firstborn son of Lord Jane Ennis. He, who is an old veteran, presumably of the Forlorn Wars, albeit I would be lying to you if I said I remembered. Uh, if it's mentioned, who is at least sympathetic to the deniers. He has been orphaned of his mother at an undisclosed, albeit presumably young age, and he is deeply in love with his sister, Anesdia. We know of Kandaspala's ultimate fate. He is slain by Draconis in his attempt to steal Dragnipper to slay Anamander Rake with, for what Anamander did to his brother, Lysanderist, and what he did to Kadaspala's sister, Anestia. And we also know of the ultimate fate of Anestia and Anderist via and the Salon and House of Jane, right? Um, we are here told that they were slain, well, Anestia was slain by an unknown assailant in um, their marriage home. We are also told that Anderist implicitly blames Anomander for this, which gives Kadaspala grievances some more credence. So what this does, what this knowledge does for us is it introduces a layer of tragic irony. Okay? Which okay, pause. What does that mean? Look at the right now. But um Kanatma's actions and speech often contradict his ultimate fate. In other words, we are aware of what's going on to be what's going to befall him him and Anesdia, but he is not. And so his actions go, go, are going contrary to that fate, represent a tragic element. Tragic irony is a subset of what's known as dramatic irony. In no particular case, it hinges on the fact that the audience, us, in this case us, 
are aware of something that the characters are not. And more often than not, those characters have to do something contrary to what the audience is aware of for dramatic irony to work. I'm first going to give a few examples from real-world tragedies before we get into um, gospel again. For an example of tragic irony from a play we have already drawn from, we can look at Oedipus Rex. Uh, Oedipus leaves Corinth, which is his adopted home, once he learned that his fate is to murder his father and marry his mother. Now, he knows this, but he thinks Corinth is his home. We know that Thebes is his home. He doesn't know that the man that he murders in a road rage accident when he's on his way to Thebes is lies, is his father. But we know that. He doesn't know that the woman he marries as a reward for ridding Thebes of the Sphinx is his mother, but we know that. Um, and later in the plague, when Oedipus declares that he will find the cause of the plague that has befallen Thebes, the element of tragic irony reaches its peak, because we know that he is the cause, and we also know that his search for that culprit will inevitably lead to his reversal of fortune and his downfall. But he doesn't know that. And that's partly what makes Oedipus Rex such a good tragedy. Um, another more pertinent and simple example would be the ending of Romeo and Juliet. Um, Romeo happens upon and entranced Juliet, has taken some potions slash serum, which makes her look dead. And he thinks she really just died. So he takes his own life. <clears throat> we know that he that Juliet hasn't actually killed herself. Romeo doesn't. Romeo actually kills himself, and then Juliet does the same. That's what's known as tragic irony, because if Romeo was like um if Romeo was privy to the information that Juliet hadn't killed herself, he wouldn't be dead. Obviously, but yeah. Further, <clears throat> it should be noted that knowing how a character's story ends does not a tragedy make. Tragic irony, as iterated before, is a deliberate invocation of the audience's knowledge contrasting with the character's actions. To get back to the Gospel with a rather crudely simple example, consider the following. When Gospel paints Urzhander's portrait, there is no layer of tragic irony. We know from Told the Hound that he's an artist, we are told in Portrait of Darkness that he's an artist, and we also know that his blindness is unrelated to uh, his painting. Or, more accurately, the cause of his blindness is unrelated to his um, painting. However, when Gadaspola professes his undying, abiding love for Anesthia and his desire to paint her, that, that is uh, tragic irony invoked, because we know that Anesthia dies at the end, right? We, we were told that. Now, Carcanos and the Book of the Fall don't always mesh. Okay, This is um, one of the main complaints people have for these books. Often is that they don't mesh together very well, and uh, I've had talks about this. I've talked to different people that we've talked on, this, on the podcast about this. But my opinion on the matter is there's sort of a limit, a hard imposed wall, upon which Steve has to play by the rules. Um, in other words, Steve has established very clearly 
that. Um, Kanaspolo blinds himself. He's killed by Draconis, and he's in Dragonipper because he tried to steal Dragonipper from Draconis to kill Rake with. Now, which of these are important? Which of these can Steve play with, so to speak? Whether or not he is killed by Draconis or by Rake or kills himself with Dragonipper accidentally isn't all that important to his tragedy, to the tale of his tragedy. What is, is the interpersonal relationships lead to said tragedy. He must blame Rake, otherwise the rest of his story in Gold the Hound doesn't make sense. He must be motivated by the death of Anesdia. His blindness is in a limbo. In our version of events, it is related. He blinds himself because of what he, what Anesdia, what befell Anesdia, and what Rake did. But it's not immediately necessary for the tragedy to work. Like he doesn't need to blind himself because of Anesdia's death for the rest of the tragedy to work. So that kind of allows Steve to have some more leniency with what to play with, but. Somehow, some way, Kadaspala uh, needs to end up in Ragnar, blaming Rake and Blind. Okay. Great. Um, so, we have now established, somewhat, why Kadaspala works as the tragic hero. Suck it, Urzal. And now we can move on to more pertinent matters, like how he attacks the themes within um, the relevant chapter, which is chapter 2 of Forge of Darkness, in his meeting with Lord Bathor Sander. So, let me set the scene. Gaspar is currently painting Lord Vathor Sander. Okay? We mostly see him through Hunral's POV. Hunral is a character for reasons I won't get into here, but you will know if you have actually read Draconis. And we are basically told outright from the very get go that this is a very politically motivated painting. This is something that Gaspar has been commissioned to do. Because of the request of Father Sander. Or perhaps more accurately, at the request of more generally the realm and the current situation within said realm. And Ursander is like kind of the most pertinent scapegoat with which to, to um, wage war with. But that's for a later episode. How good that's probably use art and all of that. We're not going to keep that here. Um, we are also told that Kalaspala is very moody when he paints, which isn't particularly relevant. It's just funny um, because later in this very scene, when we get to his POV, Kalaspala goes on to profess that he despises the notion of equal of betters or equals. That's the exact opposite. He despises the notion of betters. He views every single life as 
of immense value and of immense equal value. So everybody, regardless of station, regardless of sex, gender, race, religion, culture, any of that, any discriminatory base, is equal. And they have, their lives have immense value. And also, he is borderline sociopathic. He admits to hating everyone he knows. <laughs> Almost everyone. Um, the three exceptions I can think of off the top of my head are Anesdia, obviously, Galan, and Rai Sharath. A third one's a bit debatable. So, great. We need to look more generally, though. Why is this such a politically motivated thing? What, what is going on? What, what's up with the realm? And why is Kanaspala doomed? Like, I've made the point of calling Kanaspala a tragic hero and a doomed hero. Why are his thoughts on justice rendering him a doomed hero? To do that, we're going to need to dive a bit deeper into Kurokalane society and how it's structured. So, um... In a single sentence, Kural going to mess. Okay. In its early days, it was born as a monarchy. It is from the days of monarchy that the numerous greater houses, holds, and lesser houses were born as different families vied for power and for recognition. Like many mortal kingdoms, compromises were abound in the, in the realm of Kuralgalane, and one such compromise was bound to arise following the death of its last ruler. An unnamed queen half-sister of the Tithed Woman, now known as Mother Dark. Alas, due to certain interferences, said woman ascended it to godhood, transforming the realm of Kurogalane into a theocracy, ostensibly ruled by Mother Dark, albeit the conventions present during the days of the monarchy, lowborn and highborn, lesser and greater houses, are still around. You will be forgiven for thinking, what the fuck, <laughs> right about now. Um, it's not theoretically impossible for such a realm to arise, but given how, like, borderline Kafkaesque the, like, nightmarishly complex the ruling class of Kirill uh, Galen is, but how easily it also comes down when prodded a bit, it's very difficult to imagine this arising organically but also it's such an excellent background for this tale to go forth it's so there's so many veneers and layers trying to hide something raw beneath and it just it fails it can't it's not possible because the truth is Kroglin is ugly Kroglin is awful We've gone a lot over this on the podcast throughout Portrait of Darkness for all other reasons, but Kronagalane is awful. So, it is in that realm of impossibility that we, and Kadasma, find ourselves. A realm born of compromises, from legends forgotten and creation myths which were discarded, with an outdated system of what could generously be considered justice, a people that worship war in all but name, though they never admit to it, and a stagnant superstitious theocracy whose very leader seems to despise it. And fear not, for Ganaspala is in good company. A man who's being espoused as a reluctant hero for essentially being a competent soldier. 
Did you see that part about worshipping war? A man obsessed with what another taste less than charitably called his intellectual masturbations, and a man that adores the purity of forlorn order and justice. That man is Lord Mathur Sander. Mathur Sander is much, much more complex than I could possibly do justice in like the five minutes I'm going to allow to him, but for our purposes, he is still very early in his intellectual pursuit. I'm not going to call it the other thing that Rand calls it. Um, Rosander is essentially seeking a manner through which he would reform Kruglain society into a more... He's curious. See, that's the thing. Into a more what? A more just society? Possibly. A more egalitarian society? Perhaps. We're never really told. I have personally no doubt that Sander means well. Like, he's genuinely trying. Right? He's not actively malicious. Actively is an important bit here. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting because, holy shit, he could apply a lot of malice to Sander, but he's not actively malicious. Um... What are his laws supposed to transform the realm into? Because currently, Kuril Galen is a theocracy ruled by a goddess that doesn't want to rule, and so she delegates to her priestesses, of which there are like two head priestesses and a host of other priestesses whose main job is sex for like the purposes of commune. But there's also royalty, and like, not actually, there's no royalty, but there are highborn and lowborn. It's all really confusing. And I think Kadaspala agrees with Rosander in the regard that to fix this mess, you need to uproot the whole thing and start from the bottom. Because, truth be told, Mother Dark isn't at fault here. Mother Dark essentially inherited a flawed system, flawed realm, and she's trying to lead her people down reforms organically. Like, this is your doing. I'm not going to be the one that guides you. I'm not going to be the one that tells you what is right and what isn't, because you should know. Hold that thought. But this is effectively who Ursander is here. He is a man that adores the purity, the orderliness of forward and justice. Because everything is pristine, as Galar Barons goes on to call it later. Descent can find no purchase, because it is cut down in a welter of violence. Now, Bath I would like to circumvent that welter of violence bit, and formalize law to do the heavy lifting for him. But Kadaspal disagrees. So, <clears throat> Kadaspal, broadly, in my opinion, can be said to be Kurnot Galen's first, okay, it's gonna be first humanist. Now, 
for the purposes of this series, whenever I make mention of humanity or some other thing related to humans in such a context, just imagine that it refers to, to the dice, the non-human, right? So, in that regard, he's Kurt Galen's first humanist. In very broad terms, a definition we'll be using to apply to Ganasmala go with thusly. Humanism is a democratic and ethical life stance which affirms that human beings have the right and responsibility to give meaning and shape to their own lives. It stands for the building of a more humane society through an ethic based on human and other natural values and the spirit of reason free inquiry through human capabilities. Now, that is a broad definition and is adopted as a mantra by a single organization in the 20th century. Humanism is much too broad a term to apply to a single organization or a single like, philosophical um, idea. And humanism in the Renaissance is much different than humanism now. But we're not going to bother. This is the definition we're going to be using. This is the definition I want to use because it's easier. So, Nasmala okay. Ennis, Kronkelein's first humanist, because as I said earlier, he professes that every human life is of equal and immense value, and that is a fundamental truth. Further, um, from the definition before, the democratic part doesn't necessarily apply, so I would argue that Kanaswala almost touches upon anarchy in certain points, though that's a wholly different tale that I'm entirely unqualified to tell. But the rest of the definition can broadly be applied to Kanaswala for our purposes. He seems, as I said, seems to espouse an underlying universal truth pertaining to the governance of peoples, which arises from a certain moral framework which places humanity and its inherent value at the forefront. Though he does despise everyone he knows. <laughs> I love this guy. Um, and these two clash. Right? You have, on the one hand, Vathar Rosander, who is very clearly espousing a specific sort of governance, of justice, of law and the rules that permeate society, which are man-made, right? And then you have Kalaspala, who espouses some universal truth that's beyond, again, humanity, right? So how do you reconcile these two? Or more pertinent to perceive, how do you make these two disagree in an organic manner that like both get something out of? So there's no better way to put this than um simply quoting. <clears throat> the issue that Sander is struggling with is one of moral stance. Written law is in itself pure, at least insofar as language can make it. Ambiguity emerges only in its practical application upon society, and at this point, hypocrisy seems to be the inevitable consequence. The law bends to those in power, like a willow or perhaps a cultured rosebush, or even a fruit-bearing tree trained against the wall. Where it grows depends upon the whims of those in power, and before too long, why, the law becomes a twisted thing indeed. Pause. Kanaspala brings this up in the context of art criticism, but we'll examine this completely independently of that framework, on its own, 
or its own merits. Uh, I'm going to be quoting at length for some time now until I finish the scene, at least the pertinent parts, before we get into analysis. So this might get a bit boring. Canonical encounters are not laws, little more than formalized opinions, Lord. I begin to see the direction of your thoughts, Kadaspala. To answer you, yes, they are. Opinions on the proper and peaceful governance of society. Excuse me, but peaceful is not a word that comes to my mind when thinking of law. At its core is subjugation, after all. Pause again. So, as mentioned before, the artist is skeptic of authority espoused by the individuals in power. Mostly, he seeks to undermine the opinion that law, written, formalized opinions hold any intrinsic value over the universal value, a value that was immense of every individual life. It bears mentioning that this line of reasoning is not new. It's not new to our world, which we'll get to shortly, and it's not new to the Malazan world. A lot, and I do mean a lot, of T. Holbeck's arc, especially in Weaver's Gale, is focused precisely on the fact that human lives are of higher value than any measure of material wealth, and the question how much does a human life cost in the context of indebtedness or indentureship is in and of itself nonsense. Kaminsod exalts this line of reasoning throughout the Book of the Fallen, and the final battle against the justice of the Titleosan and Forkrosail is the pinnacle of this line of reasoning. Gorkanas, unfortunately, is different. That Gallant disagrees here, I would hazard he's pretty squarely in hashtag Team Kadaswala, but the framing of the tale requires that Kadaswala's ideas, so lofty and agreeable, be shot down to prove a point. So I'll provide uh, the rest of the quote here before we move on to our world's version. Rosander speaks. Only in the matter of mitigating damaging or antisocial behavior is law subjugation. And at this point, I return to you to my first comment. That is, of moral stance. It is the very matter with which I am struggling with little forward progress, I admit. So let us set aside this notion of peaceful for the moment. Consider the very foundation of the matter, namely, that law exists to impose rules of acceptable behavior and social discourse. Yes? Good. Let us add the notion of protecting one from harm, both physical and spiritual, and, well, you see the dilemma. Kalaspla replies that laws decide which forms of oppression are allowed, Lord. And because of that, those laws are servants to those in power, for whom oppression is given as a right over those who have little or no power. To state it plain, Kalaspala believes that the universal laws that permeate every individual life are above any mortal law, and indeed, that mortal laws are often motivated to preserve the status quo of those already in power. Laws decide which forms of oppression are allowed is such a fascinating sentiment that I, alas, will not be getting into at the moment. So, I haven't. Uh, that concludes the scene. At least the pertinent bits. I did mention earlier, I did make a mention, tangentially, of Calarbaris in Forge of Darkness, and his reasoning in one foracle justice, but effectively, what the foracle can espouse as justice is justice 
as an absolute thing, as, as the higher ideal, right? As Gadaspolis pounces that human life is the higher ideal, the Forlokan, and therefore somewhat kinda Urzander, espouses the very same that justice is the higher ideal, that peace is born of order and not the other way around. And to maintain such order, one must tolerate no dissent. As in, any dissent must be struck down and struck down immediately, lest peace that was born from said order and the order itself is lost. So order is imposed externally rather than arising internally. And that is very important because that's what both Kadaspala and Galar and I will give him some credit here. Or Sander considered to be what is good. So he does appreciate the purity and the orderliness, as I've mentioned, of Fordlican justice. Or Sander can see that this is very dehumanizing. Antigone, if you didn't know, is the third installment of the uh, the Theban Mythos in Sophocles' Trilogy. Which I'll recap right now, so there's no need to worry. If you haven't heard of it, if you have, excellent. If you haven't, please go read it. It's a very good piece. Or seek out an analysis that's better than mine, because I'm not really going to be analyzing it very much. Without further ado, then, to bring the back to tragedy, this theme of certain universal laws and rules overriding any mortal laws is the catalyst for the events of Antigone. Our friend Oedipus, do you remember? Yeah. Has married Jocaste, who is his mother, uh, and their marriage has produced four offspring, two brothers, Eteocles and Polynices, and two sisters, Smini and the titular Antigone. Following Oedipus's self-exile, the two brothers decided to basically split the throne. Each brother would rule for one year, and they would alternate between them. Antiochus would get to rule first, and in the most predictable plot twist ever, he refuses to give up the throne when his time is up. So, Polynices, who at this time was in Argos and was in good standing with the garrison king, decided to raise an army of seven generals, himself included, to besiege the city of Thebes, which had seven gates. Hence, the play describing these events by Aeschylus is named Seven Against Thebes. Long story short, the two brothers kill one another, their uncle Creon, who is brother of Jocaste, which technically also makes him Antibus's angle, don't think about it too much, takes the throne and declares that for his crime of treason against Thebes, Polynices will remain unburied. Another quick note, not giving burial rights to the dead is a big deal. This was considered to be like punishment in Thebes, but it was first of all, it was unusually harsh. Second of all, it was like borderline sacrilegious. Third of all, it arises. It raises a very interesting question. Um, in general, in conflict in ancient Greece, the resident soldiers of each individual city-state or whoever had the responsibility of burying their own people. So after a battlefield, after a battle, people the survivors would then descend, like a truce would be called, and the survivors would descend to bury their own dead. So, on top of it being like really sacrilegious, 
What Creon's gesture of not burying Polynices means is that he is no longer a citizen of Thebes. This becomes important in a second, we'll get to that, but I just wanted to bring up that like it's such a big deal that in another myth, the myth of Sisyphus, right? Who I'm not gonna get into here, but a fascinating guy, you should look him up. Uh, one of his many exploits was that when he knew the gods would be coming after him, he instructed his wife not to give him burial rites. And after he died and was taken to Hades, he goes to Persephone, who is the queen of the dead, and persuades her to let him return to the world of the living so he can haunt his wife, who did not give him proper burial rites, on the promise that he returns to the underworld after he's done. Spoiler alert for Sisyphus, he doesn't return, because that's just the kind of guy he is, but what I mean is, like, this is an affront to the gods, this is sacrilege, what Creon is doing. Um, in other words, this burying the dead thing and paying proper respect to the fallen is what we consider a universal law that permeates every mortal life and is above any mortal law. Uh, for that matter, this is precisely the argument that Antigone invokes against Creon. His laws are both immoral and sacrilegious, and that those that are dead hold more weight than any ruler, that weight of divine law. Polynices effectively betrayed his state, and one of the themes of this um, tragedy from a political standpoint, is whether or not his treason deprives him of citizenship. Another, as I've mentioned, is that burying the dead is it's ordained by divine law. It is decreed by gods, right? So, in not following those rules, Creon places his laws above divine law, which is hubris, it's what bites him in the ass in the end, and it's also very interesting. Stop me if it sounds familiar. Um, Creon's actions are based on the fact that, as I've mentioned, Polynices' treason robs him of his capacity as a citizen of Thebes, i.e. he is a stateless individual and therefore is not subjected to Theban or any contemporary state's law. Antigone does not deny Polynices' treason, because it's obvious, but instead declares that such actions do not render somebody stateless. In other words, Creon asserts that, asserts that Polynices' citizenship can be stripped if he proves to be disloyal to the state, while Antigone asserts the exact opposite. Now, this would be a more reasonable debate, if not for one crucial detail. Creon is the absolute ruler of Thebes, as out of the play, and therefore, for all intents and purposes, Creon is the state of Thebes, and the, Thebes, the state of Thebes is Creon. In other words, the law of the state of Thebes can be morphed to match Creon's desires and whims, and does this sound familiar to anyone else? <sighs> to close this particular chapter, I would like to point out that Kadaspala is far from the only person to bring up justice in the context of the Karkana trilogy or 
the greater, the greater modern world. Fall of Light is obsessed with justice. I brought up Galar Barish earlier. Uh, and, oh yeah, did I mention that, like, there's a big fight against the Leosan and the Asael at the end of the Book of the Fallen? Because that's happening. Big question in especially the last two books, Dust of Dreams and The Crippled God, are how do you fight justice? How are you an enemy of justice while remaining in the right? But no one, in my opinion, no one does it like a dust ball. He's an individual that is simultaneously cognizant of the immense injustices present within the very realm he inhabits, and he is also aware of his inherent privilege to affect the change of said injustice. Ganaspal does not allow himself to be chained by societal expectations, which is in part why I think Galan chose him for the tale, or the norms of the nobility whom he seems to hold in contempt. Now I bring this up for two reasons. One, his father, Jainanus, half-jokingly, brings this up to Anestia, right? When she broached the fact of uh, Krill leaving the Aneth house on, like, the eve of um, Anestia's wedding, Jane mentions something along the lines of, um, rather, Anestia mentions something along the lines of, are we going to uproot all uh, societal expectations and norms and all that. And Jane responds, I think I should probably leave that to the younger generation. And the other one is Heshtua, who, to her credit, is also cognizant of both of these things that I mentioned about the hospital. She knows that the realm in and of itself is unjust, that people are being persecuted, like the deniers whom she harbors. Um... People are suffering, people are dying, and the state cannot provide for them, nor cares for them. But she feels helpless. She feels like she cannot affect change. Whether or not she can is a debate we had with Mora on the pod. On the pod. I'm going to leave the link below, probably, maybe, if I remember. But The point isn't, can she do it? The point is, she feels trapped by the societal expectations and the norms of the nobility. Okay, that's why I just shit. Okay, that's why this goes, no. Fuck all of that. I don't care about any of that. I have seen way too much malice, way too much, um, what is the word, venality? Avarice? Avarice, probably. From my contemporaries in the noble class, I am not going to be like them. I'm not going to be bound by the same rules that they are, beyond the fact that we are all equals. I am not going to be above anyone else. I'm going to be equal. I'm going to be equal among equals. I'm not going to be first among equals. I think that's fucking cool. That's, like, why I'm doing this, right? That's why I'm here talking to you about this. Because I think that's fucking cool. Karaspala is a flawed hero. And admittedly, his analysis is rather outlandish. Rosander has a more tangible, more plausible goal, and that is what Kurt Galeen needs right now, even if Rosander is stumbling in his interpretation and application for two books is worth and probably doesn't even succeed in the end. But Gnaspala dares to dream. He dares to imagine true legality, and his living among the deniers and confronting Rosander in such a manner constitutes the praxis of his beliefs. And that, at least to me, is respectable. Even if we know that he will, because he must fail.
So thank you very much for watching or listening. It's been chapter two. chapter two, part one of uh, Spawns After Hours on my series on Cloud Linus. If this has been at all interesting to you, please let us know. It's your support that keeps us going. I'm not going to get sappy or ask you for anything. Just the first episode got like an immense amount of support, more than I could have like dreamed of in the first few days. And so I'm here like a few couple days after it was published, like with 60 views. I'm like, holy shit, what's going on? So thank you very much for all your support. Until next time, I have been Lee, and I'll see you later.